MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 35 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's mm-hmm. Wednesday, September 15th. We're going to have to do something for special, special for episode 45 of Clean Up. Absolutely. Or maybe we just <laughs> skip 45 and go right to episode 46. <laughs> like how there's no 13th floor. Yeah, we'll do a 44A and B episode and, uh, <laughs> and then a go. 46. Yeah. I like it. Uh, I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. With me, as always, is Andrew Torres. Oh, Allison, thank you so much. Um, Can't wait to get into the show. Our main story is the DOJ fighting back against SB8 in Texas. And we have additional updates from the DOJ. Plus, of course, comings and goings, uh, including a story about a certain serial Hatch Act violator that I know you're going to want to weigh in on. But first... As always, we have to thank our new patrons who have supported us over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod for as little as $1 an episode. Yes, that is right. So a very sincere thank you to Far Harder, uh, McF, which <laughs> could be MCF or short for McFuck. I'm not yeah. sure. MCF. I like to think MCF, dropping the sick beats, right? That's okay. <laughs> All right. Now, and then we have Alice Lutris. We have person number 42. Excellent. Answer to life, the universe, and everything that person has. Oh, I like this. We have one called Briar Should Retire, and then Keith Phillips, and then the Calvin and Hobbes cast podcast. <laughs> Those sound great. Uh, thank you all so much for supporting the show. That's over at patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. And uh, now on to the A block. So we begin with where we left off last week, Texas SB8, and what we're going to do about it. We both told you that if Merrick Garland didn't do more than just condemn it, he wasn't trying hard enough. And sure enough, the day after our episode dropped, Garland had a major press conference and announced that the Department of Justice would be suing Texas in federal court regarding the constitutionality of SB8. Now, I'm not saying it was us. Uh, it hmm. might, might have had more to do with the House Judiciary letter and perhaps Lawrence Tribe. Or maybe he started writing this the minute that SB8 dropped out of the gate. But either way, it happened. So let's break it down. Yeah, I mean, still most likely us, but uh, we begin, as always, by reading the complaint backwards. And and even here, we're going to start with the signature block because uh, this is a first for me. There are 13 different DOJ lawyers listed on this complaint. Um, that may be a record. Uh, I, I certainly cannot recall ever having seen that much public brain power assigned to a single lawsuit before. So, you know, that that is big firm levels of staffing. Uh it it's it says that the DOJ has made this a real priority. Yeah, I've no I've never seen like more than four, I think. Yeah. Maybe five back in the old Flintstone times, but uh the complaint seeks a declaratory judgment. That is that SB eight they, they want the court to declare it unconstitutional and therefore null and void because mm-hmm. it is and yeah. injunctive relief, a, a preliminary and permanent injunction against the state of Texas, including not only the state actors, but all private parties who would bring suit under the law, thus prohibiting any enforcement of SB 8. The three grounds set forth in this complaint, are there, this is truly so well put together. Number one is the Supremacy Clause of the 14th Amendment, right? Which makes yep. sense. We, we, we thought, I thought of that one. Two, preemption. I thought of that one. But then three, something called intergovernmental immunity, uh, which, <laughs> whoa, cool. I mean, they, you know, they weren't kidding when they said, we're going to look into every single legal avenue that we can. Yeah. And I want to say at the outset, 
you are right to pause over intergovernmental immunity, right? It is not a very common doctrine. All three of these causes of action are rooted in the supremacy clause of the Constitution. Okay, And and just to break that down, that's Article 6, Clause 2, which says that the Constitution and any federal laws, quote, shall be the supreme law of the land, anything in a state constitution or the laws of any state notwithstanding, right? So the question is, how does SB8 violate the Constitution and or federal law? Right. And this seems super easy for count one then. Yeah. <laughs> right. Texas SB8 violates the Constitution as we understand it from Planned Parenthood v. Casey and Roe v. Wade because it deprives a pregnant a pregnant person of their constitutional right to obtain a pre-viability abortion. And that applies to the states through the incorporation doctrine under the 14th Amendment. Is that do I have yep. that? Exactly right. So that's count one. Count two is about preemption. And and here's what that means. Right. Congress has the exclusive authority to do certain things, the most well known of which is to regulate interstate commerce. Right. But that doesn't mean that states are de facto prohibited from doing anything that can affect interstate commerce. So right. I'll give you a really easy example. Right. Maryland has a state sales tax of six percent. Maryland borders Delaware. Delaware has zero sales tax. So the state of Delaware is free to buy billboards along I-95 that say, come to Delaware, home of tax-free shopping, right? And induce Marylanders to cross the border and buy stuff in Delaware, right? That's interstate commerce, but they're still free to do it. And, and you're saying the federal government could step in and stop that if they wanted to, but they don't have to? Yeah, that's right. So um, there are a long line of cases we don't need to get into in the weeds, right, where the federal government has prevented states from imposing certain kinds of taxes within their state because the effects that that would have on interstate commerce. The important thing is it's the federal government's choice, right? So uh, when Congress passes a federal law, it can specify that that law does one of three things. Number one, uh, it, it could do nothing, right? Like it can work in concert with state laws. You just have both laws at the same time with zero restraint on the state's power. Number two, it can preempt any conflicting state law. And that's sort of the important one here. And, and, and preemption is implied whenever a federal law would say you shall do X and a state law would say you cannot do X, right? Mm. If they're in conflict, the supremacy clause says the federal law takes priority, right? And then third, uh, it can occupy the field, actually, right? You can say... There will be no state laws that even touch on that same area, even if they're not precisely the same, even if they don't inherently conflict. Because, again, supremacy, federal government gets it's it, it gets control over interstate commerce. Right. So and then on the flip side, when we're not talking about laws when we're talking about uh, constitutional liberties. Right. When a state passes a law that conflicts with those constitutional rights, you can go to a court and argue that that state law is preempted. Okay, yeah, and th this sort of makes sense to me, and you know, with insofar as my government position, and that you know, in California, if you want to be a nurse, it's by law you have to be licensed to be a nurse. But if you work at the VA, you can move from state to state, and you don't have to be licensed in all those states. And that policy, I guess, would sort of preempt what any state would require. Yeah, that that makes total sense. Yes. All right. Cool. I got it. And I, I'm also thinking of like uh, you know cannabis consumption stuff like that. But mm -hmm. that's that's all weird. But same. <laughs> and that's exactly what we have here, right? This is, this is section three of the complaint. It notes the way SB eight affects interstate commerce. This begins at paragraph thirty six, which notes that SB eight forces pregnant people who wish to obtain con uh, constitutionally protected abortions and related services to travel out of Texas to other states in order to exercise their constitutional rights, and it hinders businesses and nonprofits engaged in this commercial activity. And then paragraph 37 notes that clinics in Oklahoma, Louisiana, New Mexico, Colorado, and Kansas are being inundated with a surge of pregnant people, and you and I both reported on that and those stories in our respective other shows. Yeah, yeah, we did. And then, uh, so, so that's preemption, right? The idea Wait, is here comes my favorite part, though. Yeah, <laughs> this is the most clever part of the argument. Count three, the intergovernmental immunity point. Right. And that argument is that SB8 impermissibly burdens federal government obligations. Right. It is a state 
purporting to tell the federal government what it can and can't do, which directly contradicts the supremacy clause. And these arguments are they're very technical, but they're really good. Right. This begins on page 16. If you're following along, there are at least six different federal government programs that SB8 would prevent from doing what they've promised to do. Right. So let's start off with the first example in the complaint, the Job Corps. Right. That applies to people ages 16 to 24. There are four federal Job Corps centers in Texas. It's a public private partnership, so they're privately administrated. If you signed up for the federal Jobs Corps program, let's say in 2020, right? Um, and that program is a federal program. It is funded by Congress. It is administered by the Federal Department of Labor, an executive branch, right? You get, when you sign up, a policy and requirements handbook, right? Um, that That's just like any employee manual. It, it tells you the terms of the job. And the case was super duper clear. That's a binding contract, right? That's what your employer says. These are your responsibilities. Here are your rights. And that handbook says enrollees in the program have the right to have access to pregnancy-related services, including information and services related to abortion. And it also says that those Job Corps centers must identify, quote, available community health and social resources and services and make arrangements for transportation so that if you're enrolled in the program, you can access those resources and obtain those services, which include an abortion. Yeah. And I never even thought of this. Right. I, yeah. cause I was thinking, Andrew, from a military standpoint, mm -hmm. being like, hey, uh, the if you're in the military, 30,000 women, uh, I don't know how many uh, people who are able to get pregnant, but 30,000 women stationed in Texas, active duty service in the military. The federal government owns and controls their bodies. And I thought that there might be some sort of a supremacy problem. Uh, a supremacy clause problem with the state telling the federal government what these women cannot do mm -hmm. with their bodies. But they left that completely out of here. But this is along well, the lines with, with an asterisk. Let's let's get to that. Yeah, right. Because they, they, it, it is kind of brought up. So, I mean, but if we think about it, it means that if you signed up for the Job Corps in 2020, like you said, the federal government promised that if you got pregnant, it would make arrangements for you, not just allow you to, but it would ha have to help make arrangements for you. This is a contract to have access to your constitutional right to an abortion. But SB 8 imposes civil liability, $10,000 plus, to anyone who facilitates or pays for an abortion or aids and abets an abortion. Yep. So the state law would supersede the federal obligation. And that makes no sense if the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. It goes vi directly violates the supremacy clause. Yep, that is exactly right. And your point on the military, he here's how that was translated into the lawsuit, right? Um, any DOD employee, right, uh, is covered by TRICARE for their medical care, right? And uh, just as in the job court, we were clear to say, because you can't pass any federal program where it will pay for a voluntary abortion because our country is irredeemably right. screwed. Right? I see. Yeah, because <laughs> because this gets around the whole Hyde Amendment thing. Yeah. Because uh, be, of what TRICARE covers. Right. And and, and go go ahead. I mean, you were <laughs> you were subjected to TRICARE. Yeah. Yes. And it, 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 it does cover abortion services that are the result of rape or incest. So that is, seems to me like one fatal flaw. I mean, one of a million fatal flaws of this law by leaving out the rape and incest part. They could have circumvented this very particular thing. Probably not anything else. But you know what I'm you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there are multiple federal obligations, right, to pay for, to federally fund abortions that are the result of rape or incest, right? And think about what that means, right? That is such an overwhelming supermajority of this country believes that you should have access regardless of your financial level to an abortion in the event of rape or incest, that that made it into the law where virtually everything else did not. So SB8 
no exception, under the same pays-for provision, SB8 would allow vigilantes to sue TRICARE every time they reimburse an abortion for rape or incest, right? And that kind of nonsense, right, where a state could allow you to effectively tax a federal institution has been prohibited for two centuries since McCulloch versus Maryland, right? Way back when uh, Maryland tried to tax the uh, second federal bank of the United States in 1819, states cannot impair federal obligations. Yeah. And so the same thing is true for other federal government employees, right? And mm-hmm. it's also true for prison inmates. Bureau of Prisons yep. bears the cost if a person is raped in prison and then has to have an abortion. BOP also permits inmates to elect to have an abortion. And both of those obligations are in danger, thanks to SB8. So, okay, this seems like a very good legal argument to me, but I do have a quick question for you, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Could the decision here be to carve out these exceptions and and for the Supreme Court to say, you big stupid dummies, you didn't think about Job Corps, you didn't think about the federal government's obligations, we're carving those out, this just applies to everybody else. I mean, is that a, a, a plausible scenario? That that That's an excellent question. And the analysis that uh, any court is going to do that. It, it It's sometimes called blue penciling when you rescue a contract, right? Where you just sort of sever out the terms of the contract that are unconstitutional. And that can happen with laws as well. The question becomes, and, and this was raised in uh, the various Obamacare cases, right? Um, how intrinsically linked are the provisions you are looking to sever from what you're looking to do? And again, here, I feel like this is part of the uh, well-researched aspect of, of this lawsuit um, is, is to show how intrinsic the notion of abortion being tied to this made up fetal heartbeat thing Uh, Like you would you would have to you could not just excise certain provisions of SB8. You would have to actively rewrite the law. You'd have to put in uh, a specific provision for rape and incest. And that would be contrary to what the state legislature said. Right. Mm. That that it it strikes me as highly unlikely that a court is going to go to that end. They're going to say, look, like that this is this is what the legislature passed. And if you want to carve out the unconstitutional stuff, um, you're going to have to carve out the heart of the law. Uh, Because remember, in addition, you have the aiding and abetting uh, facilitating clauses and all of those government obligations require uh, these various government agencies or officials, federal officials, to make information available, to arrange for transportation, to and 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 because of how broad SB8 is written, they're all potentially legally liable to vigilantes in Texas under SB8. So um, it, it's it, it it's well done. So I don't. I'm that's not a thing that I'm worried about. Yeah, and I love the jurisdictional or standing argument. Mm-hmm. You tell me which one it is that says, hey, just because these are private citizens that are enforcing this law, that that doesn't mean it's it's separate from the state. You can't divorce that from the state. You're officially or essentially deputizing these vigilantes, making them an arm of the state, which gives us standing to bring all of this in the first place, right? Yeah, and, and I like, look, that is an incredibly thorny area, right? This is section two, beginning on page nine. Um, the way I like that that this lawsuit is written is that it it kind of proceeds backwards, right? It begins with the idea that, of course, the United States can stop a law that imposes state obligations on a federal a government agency, like. There must be the power to do that. <laughs> so therefore, ah. however you reach that, uh, you you cannot you figure have it out. The it's contrary like, result. Yeah, it's like when I get my bill from the restaurant and it's like forty six eighteen, and I put sixty and then the word math in the tip line. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, that's that's what I immediately yeah, thought of. And, now. And, and the section goes out of its way to document that. All of the private enforcement was carefully crafted as a pretext in order to prevent 
judicial review of this statute and to say, Corey, you know, you should look at this and uh, and to be incredibly skeptical. And and I love that because, you know, as as we have both been doing from day one, getting the message out to the public that, you know, that the fundamental threshold question of is this a fair thing to do? Is this a reasonable thing to do? Right. Is always on the table, no matter how complicated the law sounds. Yeah. Well, I I think that this is I think they have a good chance. Um, but the question here is, I mean, you know, with, with my concern with the, the military women in Texas mm. is because currently uh, without the passage of the Military Justice, Military Justice Act, uh, women who are in the military or people who can get pregnant in the military don't have a safe place to report their rapes. There is no rape and incest objection. So I'm thinking, can we please, if we have the votes, pass this? So because, yeah. you know, when uh, Abbott gets up and says, oh, we're just going to get rid of all the rapists. We could have done this the whole time, but we're just deciding to now. Um, I'm like, well, could you at least give uh, women in the military a, uh, or people who can get pregnant in the military a safe place to report where they have a chance of getting their rapist prosecuted <laughs> and brought to justice? And, you know, I was upset because they threw, took it out of the Senate, threw it into the NDAA. It's going to take a year to, to, to go into if effect. My concern is the, the, the impact now on, on people who can get pregnant in Texas right now. So how long is this going to take? Um, I mean, yeah, especially with the courts <laughs> backed up. I mean, this is what, Fifth Circuit? Uh, yes, it, 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 it will be. This was brought in the uh, U.S. District Court in Texas. Uh, will go up to the Fifth Circuit. Um, you are right to, to be concerned, uh, because the answer is, uh, not immediately. And I'm not sure how long ultimately it will take, uh, for the Western Div district of Texas to, to issue, uh, a, a permanent injunction in this case. I believe that they will. I mean, the law is just crystal clear. Um, but, uh, you know, I thought the Supreme Court would enforce the law, too. So, yeah, but you know, why I've, not like why not ask for an emergency stay? They seem to be handing them out like fucking gumballs. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, so so as you point out, this does not include an emergency request for a TRO or a stay. I think that that is done strategically because you would derail that argument with the question of whether that is res judicata from the mm. Supreme Court's denial of the Fifth Circuit's refusal to enter an injunction. Basically, they could shadow docket your ass again. Yeah. And and I think the idea is to get the time running on this right away. So this this does not include an emergency request. It does not include a motion to expedite, right? So at minimum, state of Texas gets a month to, to answer or move to dismiss, right? Um, that's They're probably going to move to dismiss. That's probably going to be a few months of briefing. I, I think, given the way that this is articulated that we're likely to see an early summary judgment motion because there are like most of these are not questions of fact. They are questions of law. Right. Um, but I, I mean, you are right. right they're to... not arguing like what is a fetus? When is the no. heartbeat? What is this? No. This is like I'm the federal government and you're fucking my shit up and you can't do that because you're a state. Peace out. Yep. That's right. And they can attach affidavits to a summary judgment motion to that effect uh, that uh, the state of Texas will not be able to dispute, you know, that uh, it it impermissibly burdens uh, federal government employees. They can say, oh, we don't intend to enforce it in that way. Uh, but that's not a great legal argument. Yeah, your snorting is uh, is appropriate there. Right. So uh, I, yeah, I these aren't going to be like Corona affidavits. I mean, these are. Gonna no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're going to do their best. But 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 you are correct. This is what we meant when uh, we spent most of the episode last week explaining how drastic the Supreme Court's actions were. This law, SB 8, is in effect now. It is forcing pregnant people. It is forcing women. It is forcing people across the border, right, of Texas into neighboring states. It is driving clinics out of business. And every day the law is in effect. Pregnant people are being denied their basic constitutional rights. And, um, and they shouldn't be. We should be a, a, a country of laws. And, and on this issue, we're not because of zealots on the Supreme Court. God, what a dark time. But what a brilliant lawsuit brought by the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I there there are things like some some in certain points I was like, yeah, this and yeah, that. But there are some things I just never even 
pondered uh, that they threw in there. And not just because they're doing a, a Sydney Powell and just throwing the kitchen sink at you. It's because yeah, these are yeah. extremely excruciating, well-thought-out legal arguments that all apply and all have meaning and merit. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens here. But I'm glad we got to break this down because I, th- I feel like uh, even though... There are, like you said, pregnant people in Texas right now being denied their constitutional right. I think it's important to cover how thorough uh, and succinct that this particular lawsuit was and and is. And I I, I, I can't see it losing, honestly. That, um, neither neither can I, and that that terrifies me to say. I, I will just say. We still have another hearing on the Mississippi case coming up, which they could, <laughs> they could gut row in a whole different and new way. Um, yep. That that has that has year. been briefed and will likely be calendared for oral argument in November, mm-hmm. which means we're looking at April to May uh, for the uh, the opinion on that. Uh, April to May of 2022. Unless it's super it. bad and Justice Roberts tries to delay it, then we might not see it till June. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we'll see what happens. But we I, will see I don't want to laugh about it because I'm. I, that's no. what I'm fully, honestly terrified for is I, it, that it, decision. It, 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 I we know what's coming in that decision that it's that's been telegraphed. And we should oh, prep what for you that. can ask for. Yeah, what we you can ask for, for right is for. The Democratic administration and a Democratic run Department of Justice to do everything in its power to fight SB8. And and this meets that criteria. If you're asking why can't they just, you know, fiat the state of Texas out of existence, I like that, you know, that you, you can't do magic. Right. What, what we're asking for is do the people we put in power do everything in their power uh, to stand up for individual rights here. And, and in my view, this qualifies and um, uh, and and it's and it signals a real commitment. Yeah. So we'll see. And I implore the Department of Justice in, the, in this administration to start tabletop exercises about potential outcomes about the Mississippi case and to start thinking about it now. Um, yep. Now. Because we can't keep delaying this stuff all right we will be right back we have some other things that the department of justice has done in the last week that we need to talk about but we have to take a quick break stay with us hey everybody it's ag for cleanup on aisle 45 every year u.s businesses waste over 400 billion dollars that's 400 billion dollars because bad writing it causes confusion misses the mark takes too long to get to the point on the flip side Better writing also helps businesses win and impress customers, enhances brand perception, improves internal communication, and strengthens relationships with critical partners. Better, faster writing means better business, which is why your team needs WordTune for teams. Going way beyond simple spelling and grammar correction, WordTune is the only AI-powered writing tool that not only understands meaning, but intent, and offers writing suggestions that help anyone achieve clear and compelling writing. It's the ultimate writing tool to elevate your entire team's writing instantly. I was wondering how a writing tool could possibly do this, so I gave it a try. WordTune is so helpful, I was amazed at its ability to understand what I was getting at. You simply highlight the copy you want to revise, and WordTune offers you a variety of alternative wordings, plus the ability to shorten or lengthen a sentence if you want, or you can even change its tone. WordTune improves performance on any project, everything from internal emails and press releases to sales outreach and customer service support, and so much more. You can use WordTune anywhere you're writing online, including Google Docs, Slack, Outlook Web, and WhatsApp, and more. You can try WordTune for free at wordtune.com cleanup. And if you're looking to elevate your entire team's writing, you can get a discount for the team today at wordtune.com cleanup. WordTune improves writing efficiency up to four times. And better, faster writing means better business. So start writing with WordTune at wordtune.com cleanup. All right, everybody, welcome back. In addition to the Department of Justice lawsuit against Texas over SB8, which I am in love with, uh, we have a few more stories from Maine Justice. Uh, The first comes from the Columbus Dispatch, and they report that the Justice Department has agreed to review Columbus, Ohio, and their division of police's pattern and policies, particularly pertaining to racial bias. Yeah, that is right. Mayor of Columbus and City Attorney Zach Klein 
requested this review of the police division back in April. But this is sort of different, right, Andrew, from the other patterns and practice investigations we've seen from the Department of Justice. Uh, They're already conducting in cities like Minneapolis and Louisville. This is different from that. Yeah, yeah. So Klein said it would be different because the DOJ has agreed to look into Columbus as part of the larger community-oriented policing services, the COPS office, right? And um, it it does not involve any litigation, right? Usually when the DOJ proactively steps in and issues a consent decree, it's because there's been a lawsuit that's been filed, right? And we know how those lawsuits get filed um, as part of the process. In this case, we're not waiting for a horrible case of police brutality against an African-American person. It's a preemptive move by Columbus to gain expertise from across the country on best practices. And and you have to commend the entire process. Yeah. yeah and I don't think we've seen, I haven't seen this kind of voluntary review no. in, in other cities, or at least, not that I'm aware of, at least. Please, if, if, you, if you know of one, let us know. Write in. Send it in. But Police Chief Elaine Bryant said the Department of Justice will be working on reviews of several areas she has identified as potential focus opportunities. Those Mm. include reviewing policies, officer training, technology, and an early warning system to try and identify officers who may be in need of services prior prior to a critical incident taking place. I I assume, uh, Andrew, that this request was in the form of a letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. So the letter said the city had made significant progress in recent years in police reform, uh, but that they have met, quote, fierce opposition from leadership within the Columbus Police Division. Oh, okay. So uh, so this is this is what makes it different. It appears (laughs) that the mayor and the city attorney have been trying to implement some changes, but they aren't having the easiest time garnering cooperation from the cops. So they're inviting the Department of Justice to, I get you know, take a peek under the hood. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. And look, this is the kind of thing you have to do in a state like Ohio, where you have a Republican governor and and slightly Republican legislature, right? Like in Maryland, for example, we just enacted police reform in 2020. And one of the most crucial aspects of that omnibus package, we covered this on OA, was taking police institutional police officers part out of not entirely out of the process, but but bringing I guess it's more accurate to say bringing the community into that process. Right. So prior to the Maryland reforms, we had police brutality complaints were handled by the police department. (laughs) Right. Right. And oftentimes it was the officer's superior you know, who was being charged, who would be sitting there, uh, you know, adjudicating these claims. And what Maryland did was went from uh, went to a three person panel where one person is a representative of the community. One person is an existing or retired judge. And then one person is a representative from the police department. Right. So so you're not disaggregating, uh, you know, the the blue from that. But but you are saying maybe we need some kind of outside checks and balances. So uh, I, it, 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 that's the kind of thing you can do legislatively. But if you don't have access to the legislature, um, this is incredibly clever. So the mayor, the city attorney um, are, are not the only ones getting involved in this, right? C- community members, including the newly formed Columbus Police Accountability Project, CPAP, Uh, also asked for the DOJ to conduct a review of the Columbus police and attorney Sean Walton, one of the CPAP founders who has represented family members of people killed by police, said in a statement that the current planned involvement of the DOJ in Columbus is not enough, um, but uh, uh, presumably good starting point. Um, And the police union right now has said that they are happy to cooperate. We'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, I I was I kept scrolling down in the article looking for the response from the head of the police union, the (laughs) brotherhood, whatever benevolent brotherhood of sweet, nice people or whatever the fuck they call themselves. And apparently they're like, hey, yeah, bring it on. So, I mean, I guess that would be sort of a like you've and lift bro kind of a statement. So <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of not surprised um, because if they, you know, 
obviously if they were like do you leave us alone we're the cops then they would probably get a lot of backlash so i think they're in the bring it on phase although i again i'm not sure sure how long that would last and i'm also wondering andrew if any other departments in the country are going to make similar requests to the doj this is like i said this is the first i've heard of of the doj being asked to come in and do kind of a you know a process review uh, and them saying yes. So now I'm wondering if we'll, we won't see a wave of uh, where we have, like you said, red states, red police unions, red governors, red legislatures, but but like blue mayors, you know, these blue dots in these red seas yep. saying, OK, well, I would like the DOJ to come in and, uh, you know, take a look at Austin for a second or, you know, what? Well, I mean, there's a million cities that you could yep. that you could name. Yeah. Yeah. And and we will just have to uh, keep our eyes open and, and see if that happens. But, um, you know, it is all kind of part of, you know, de- <laughs> dealing from from the top down. You know, we're all in this together cleaning up on aisle 45. So. But I do love that. You know, I mean, if if the if the if the blue mayor of this city had asked the Trump administration or, de- or the bar department of justice, to, can, can you do a policies and practice thing? They'd be like, oh, fuck yourself. Yep. So. Uh, this is why we vote. Indeed. All right. Next up, just a quick one. Just as President Biden promised on the campaign trail, the DOJ has also filed an appeal challenging the Texas ruling from July uh, that the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program is unconstitutional. Um, they filed that notice uh, of appeal in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, to start the process to overturn uh, what uh, U.S. District Court Judge Andrew Hainan uh, ruled on July 16th uh, in favor of nine states led by Texas, of course, that found uh, that DACA violated federal administrative law. And I should I should uh, amend my prior statement. This is uh, a finding uh, that the uh, executive branch acted ultra virus and violated the Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, I, I mistakenly said unconstitutional. I meant uh, illegal, null and void. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, uh, but apparently, that ruling had stopped the United States temporarily from granting anyone DACA status, although Biden's Department of uh, Homeland Security has continued to accept applications. So I feel like they kind of planned on this, uh, <laughs> this lawsuit. But DOJ isn't the only appeal filed here. Yeah, because they're also private interests, right? So there are 22 DACA recipients, uh, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, uh, which is a nonprofit Latino civil rights organization, uh, are all also part of the appeal because, right, this has policy implications, but also real world implications for real people. You and I have both talked about DACA on our respective shows. Uh, I, I, I try and use the language of enrollees uh, because uh, DACA, it is not even even the language of recipients, which is you know sort of neutral uh, seeming, it, it, it could potentially imply you know they're getting government money. DACA more than pays for itself, right? Because not only in the filing fees and and getting, around, but then these people become eligible to pay taxes. That is the primary benefit of being a DACA enrollee. Uh, but 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 roughly like here's here's the law really quickly. Um, it is important to remember, unlike the DREAM Act, right? Unlike lots of things that are on the Democratic legislative agenda, call Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and let's <laughs> blow up the filibuster, right? Um, da- DACA, be- because our legislature's broken, right? DACA was not a law. It was a policy, an executive branch policy implemented by Obama's Department of Homeland Security and by uh, CBP, by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, by ICE, right? So uh, the question was, did Congress delegate sufficient scope to DHS to craft a program as detailed as specific as DACA. And 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 look, this is a close legal question, right? You can believe, as I do, that DACA is a tremendous program. I just I just said it. Um, the 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 way to protect this is to pass the DREAM Act. Right. 
Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm glad the DOJ is appealed. Uh, it is going to a very conservative uh, circuit court Fifth and circuit. to a very conservative Supreme Court. And if you care about these issues, uh, the, the way to protect it is to get rid of the legislative ambiguity and have Congress pass a law that says, yes, you can do this. Well, uh, we will keep, uh, obviously, I mean, it's kind of our job here at Clean Up on All 45 to keep track of all of these Department of Justice appeals, things that the Department of Justice is doing. I have, an, I have a running list, Andrew, of things they do I love and things they do I hate. <laughs> and, and right now, the things they do I love is probably about four times longer than the things they do I hate. Uh, and, and, and I have a caveat even though I hate them, they still may be the right thing. Uh, so I just, uh, you know, want to. I like that list. I, I, I that. yeah, no, I th- I think that's right. But uh, we do have uh, our our favorite segment coming up. We can talk about comings and goings, and this is a good one this week. I mean, you know, sometimes it's quiet, sometimes it's loud, and this one's loud. So we're going to talk about it right when we get back. Stay with us. Hey everybody, it's Allison with Cleanup on Al 45, and today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Feels CBD. If you haven't tried CBD yet, you must. I highly recommend it. CBD isn't about what you feel, it's about what you don't feel, like stress and anxiety and insomnia. Feels CBD is safe, organic, and has been really helpful for me with pain relief, nervousness, and insomnia, and there's no hangover or addiction. Feels is a premium CBD that will help keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free, delivered right to your doorstep, Feels has helped me feel calmer, less sore after workouts. That's my particular favorite part. It elevates my mood, and it's helped me sleep better as well. Feel the difference within minutes by placing a few drops of Feels under your tongue. Finding the right dose of CBD is very important, and everyone's dose is different, so you know. Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the best use of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. Uh, you, you'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel any time. Very easy, and they have excellent customer service. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash cleanup, and you'll get 50% off your order with free shipping. I've never seen such an amazing discount. That's feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash cleanup, and become a member and get 50% automatically, automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash cleanup. And now it is time, as you teased before the commercial break, for everyone's favorite segment, Comings and Goings. And we're not going to tease you any longer. You had to wait all the way to the C segment. So let's start with the goings, which include Kellyanne Conway. Mm. Allison, Mm. I know Mm. you have a special love for someone who just drips contempt over the Hatch Act and, you know, all of the kinds of ethical constraints that normal people have respected for decades. Yes, yes. I'm so excited about this. <laughs> you are literally dancing. <laughs> this is this is my favorite. Uh, you know, a lot of people I found on the social media, a lot of people were like, what the fuck? They're still working for uh-huh. the government? Ah, yeah. In, uh, in what took you so long news last week, the Biden administration told 11 officials appointed to military service academy advisory boards by the former guy to resign or be dismissed and this is his thing right i feel like this is this is kind of the the sort of cornerstone of comings and goings you have until 4 p.m today to gtfo or we'll fire you uh resign or fired um but, but very prominent names included here like former white house press secretary Sean Spicy, <laughs> former pretty much anyone who's been on Dancing with the Stars, former senior counselor to President Kellyanne Conway, and former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. Yeah, if you were wondering where that guy was, where was that guy <laughs> serving on an uh, on a service academy advisory board? They were appointed to advisory boards of the Naval Academy, Air Force Academy, and West Point respectively somehow uh even in app like their mere existence violates the codes <laughs> set forth by those schools yeah i look i generally love jen Psaki, and she did not disappoint in the uh <laughs> press conference when asked about these moves she said quote the president's objective is what any president's objective is to ensure that you have nominees and people serving on these boards who are qualified to serve on them and who are aligned with your values I will let others evaluate whether they think Kellyanne Conway and Sean Spicer and others were qualified or not political to serve on these boards. But the president's requirements 
are not your party registration. They're whether you're qualified to serve and whether you're aligned with the values of this administration. Well, well said. And like, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, Kellyanne Conway with her lifetime of involvement with the Air Force Academy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> And this is so great. Uh, some other names you might not, and me being a veteran and having a special uh-huh. place in my heart for the Hatch Act, yeah, CAC can GTF. Um, anyway, some other names you you might not know who are also super fucking terrible. Heidi Stirrup, the former oh. White House liaison to the Justice Department who was banned, first of all, why do we have a liaison from the White House to the fucking Justice Department? There should be a brick goddamn wall 100 feet high. Yeah, right. Uh, but anyway, I understand. Maybe there's a liaison to the Justice Department who was banned from entering the building after she attempted to access sensitive information about possible election fraud in December of 2020. Remember her? Yeah, mm. apparently still there. And retired Colonel Douglas McGregor, former ambassador pick and Pentagon official who said a bunch of xenophobic racist shit back in 2020, called for martial law at the border. Yeah, the guy who said, quote, Muslim migrants were coming to Europe with the goal of eventually turning Europe into an Islamic state. Uh, As if that isn't what a Nazi would say. Uh, yeah, yeah the, good, good to remind people that below the popular evil names are... More evil. Uh, so just to round it all out, others who have been asked to resign include Michael Wynn, who was appointed to the board of the Air Force Academy, retired General John Keane, Megan Mobs, David Urban, who were all appointed to the board at West Point, and John Cole and Russell Vout. Uh, that's Trump's former director of OMB. Uh, he was appointed to the Naval Academy's board. Vote, you might recall, is the guy who immediately tweeted out, no, it's a three-year term, to which Biden was like, well, then you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, Spicy did the same thing on his, right? Got, yep. Did you know Sean Spicer has a show on Newsmax? I didn't oh, know this. I did not know this until today. Yeah, ah, I found that out researching this story. I wish I could say I was surprised. Uh, of course, the most attention came from Kellyanne Conway, who said she wouldn't resign and that Biden's decision is disappointing, but understandable, given the need to distract from a news cycle that as you mired in multiple self-inflicted crises and plummeting poll numbers, and I think at the end of her thing she said, I don't know, resign, you resign. Uh, Well, the important thing is, bye-bye to all of you idiots. (laughs) And I wish you good luck in your doomed... No, I don't. I don't. That's that's lying. File your lawsuits, you're going to lose those too. (laughs) Yep, 100%. Bye-bye. And for the Cummings part, we welcome eight new federal judicial nominees, bringing the total of nominees up to 43, which, again, are sorely needed. Mm -hmm. Five of these are district court judges. All of them continue Biden's commitment to genuine diversity. And three are critically important nominees to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Those three are Lucy H. Koh, the first Korean-American woman to serve as a federal appellate judge, and the second Asian-American woman to serve on the Ninth Circuit from California. Gabriel P. Sanchez, and Holly A. Thomas, who will become just the second black woman to ever serve on the Ninth Circuit. Yeah. And as usual, to ward off, you know, Uncle Frank and a diversity picks, right? These candidates have qualifications that are off the charts. Let's start with Judge Coe, who is currently U.S. District Court Judge for the Northern District of California. She's only been on the bench 11 years prior to her confirmation as a federal judge. Uh, she was also a California Superior Court Judge. That's a that's a trial court for Santa Clara County for two years. Before that, she was a partner in a big law firm, McDermott, Will & Emery. Before that, she was an AUSA for three years. Uh, she was special counsel in the criminal division of DOJ for four more years. Right And All of that, the most important, the only qualification that matters, double-barreled Harvard, right? Graduating from the university in 1990 and the law school in 1993. Double-barreled Harvard. (laughs) I've never heard that term. And then there's Justice Gabriel P. Sanchez, who has been an associate justice on the California Court of Appeal, first appellate district. That's California's intermediate appellate court for three years since 2018, prior to being appointed to the bench. Justice Sanchez worked for seven years in California state government, including a stint as deputy attorney general. Kind of a big deal. And before that was in a big law firm. Uh, He only has a JD from Yale, though. So I'm sure you'll look down your nose at him, Andrew. But (laughs) he was a Fulbright scholar. So you ought to cut him a little bit of slack. <laughs> those, those, those that, that tends to have some uh, qualifications, they tend to be slightly smart. All right. Finally, 
a Judge Thomas to be proud of. Judge Holly A. Thomas, who has been a uh, judge in the Family Law Division of the Los Angeles County Superior Court since 2018. Prior to being appointed to the bench, Judge Thomas was Deputy Director of Executive Programs at the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing for for three years. Uh, For two years before that, she was Special Counsel to the New York Solicitor General. For five years before that, she was an appellate attorney in the DOJ's Civil Rights Division. Uh, She earned the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Service in 2014. Uh, For five years before that, she worked at the uh, NAACP's Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Um, She, yeah, is just a lifetime of service uh, and and particularly in the civil rights arena. And um, and again, you know, uh, acceptable academic credentials. I mean, she she graduated from Stanford, you know, in 2000, probably uh, spent some time at the beach and then uh, you slacker uh, could 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 only get into Yale Law School uh, where she graduated. In case you can't tell, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, oh, these are sure. not. Yeah, these are not Justin's and Corey's coming out of Liberty University or, or Trevor McGregor's. Yeah. Ugh. God. Well, here's hoping one day I raise a glass to this Judge Thomas replacing our current Justice Thomas. I think that that would be fucking amazing. Uh, I, I don't, you know, it usually come from the D.C. Circuit Court, but it could come from Ninth Circuit. Yeah, maybe, there's, maybe. That, look, there, what I love is uh, Biden is illustrating that uh, the, the bench is so deep. Uh, and so rich, and it really just throws, you know, the Federalist Society hacks that we got used to for the last four years. Into, yeah, into like they were acting relief. like, well, there's just no qualified nominees. I got to pick Trevor and Brad and Chaz because, uh, you know, that's just all who's left. No, that's all who's left that'll, do, do, like, do your fucking dirty work. <laughs> yep. That's that's yep. all that is. Uh, but there, yeah, the breadth and depth and diversity of this bench is fantastic. Now, if we could just double the size of the federal bench, maybe expand there you go. a little bit, <laughs> we'd probably be in a little bit better situation. But thank you for all of those comings and goings. Everybody, all these judges, welcome aboard. And to all the people who left this week, bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> yeah. So this is And been that's a great our episode. Show. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome show today. And I appreciate you, Andrew. And. I I already miss you from D.C. I feel like we're going to have to do another live episode soon or at least a Zoom call. So if you're a patron, please stay tuned for any future information, which is coming shortly, on when we will have some sort of a live either Zoom virtual or in-person meet and greet. It's coming quickly. Absolutely. We can't wait. We love uh, each and every one of you. We love our patrons more. And uh, you know how to you know how to get into our special list. <laughs> Patreon.com slash aisle 45. I love you all, but you can apparently buy Andrew's affection for a dollar yeah, an episode. Yeah. No, I mean, I you know, there's they're just different levels. It's it's you know. <laughs> I love you, but I don't love Yeah, well, I'm not in love with all of you to the same degree. <laughs> I yeah. am. Anyway, I'm just kidding. I just like throwing you under the bus. Uh we will yeah. be back next week with more of the same. So if you have any mm-hmm. questions or concerns, you can hit us up on Patreon and again, patreon.com slash aisle four five pod. We would love to hear from you. I'd love for you to be a patron. Until next week, I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres, and this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.